Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I just want to apologize. So last week, I was just trying to get your attention. And so I was like trying to like, how can I get everyone's attention to talk about this film night? Oh, I'll razz them about the Kansas City Chiefs losing. Because here's what I thought was going to happen. I thought for sure Patriots are going to lose. Next week I come, it'll be a lot of fun. Everybody, oh, ha ha, Craig, we got you. Then they won, and now I feel bad. And so I still want you to come to the film night. I still, it's really important, but I'm sorry I was a jerk. That's like the New England fan thing. So I'm super sorry about that. But this morning, we're kicking off a brand new series going through the book of Ephesians. And my hope and my prayer as I've been prepping this sermon series is that you would move into a deeper understanding of the grace of God. Not just that you would understand it intellectually, but that you'd actually build your identity off of that. Um, God's grace makes all things new. It actually transforms us into this, this thing called the new humanity. And I hope that as we go through this book, it's my prayer for us as a body, that we'd be transformed, that we'd understand our identity and what it is that Jesus won for us and how that makes all things new. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kick off this series by re- going through all of chapter 1. I know it's really dumb. It's a huge chapter. We're going to miss a lot of great stuff, but we're going to try to get the heartbeat of this chapter. Uh, And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole chapter. And in the early church, one of the things they would do when they would read scripture is the reader, when he was finished reading, would say, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation would reply, thanks be to God. So we're going to try that this morning. You'll know I'm done reading when I say this is the word of the Lord. And you can reply, thanks be to God. And then I'll pray for our time this morning. So let's, this is God's word. Let's read. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, of, his, of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, 
the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the reason ever since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that um, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance among his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning needy. God, so many of us just go through life with just so much baggage, this low-grade guilt we walk through. God, I pray that we would see how what your son did completely transforms us. It gives us a new identity, that both your grace and your power are at work in us, making us new. God, I pray that we would see this as good news and that we'd be transformed by looking at your son, Jesus, that when he gets exalted, we get help. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was perusing around on a social media website, and uh, I saw this post that got my attention. It was asking the question, what's the greatest photograph of all time? And it was a super dangerous post because I spent like hours just looking through all these pictures. Everyone said, no, no, this is the most important photograph of all time. Some of the pictures that people brought up were pictures like this. Uh, This is a guy named Bruce McCandless. So in 1984, Bruce did something that no other human being had ever done. He got out of the space shuttle and completely untethered to anything, he just free-floated in space. So I just want you to imagine, just how, look at this, he's just, that's just him in total silence, standing above earth, and no one had ever done that before, and NASA actually says that this is one of the most important photographs ever taken in space. I have no idea what Bruce, what was he was missing in his life that made him feel like he needed to do this, but there you go. For all you animal lovers out there, this was a a really popular pic as well. Uh, This is a picture that was taken in Morocco in 1942 in the Atlas Mountains. That's the last known photograph of a Barbary lion. Uh, The Barbary lions were this like really majestic lion that has now gone extinct in the wild. And uh, somebody snapped this pic. uh, It's really stoic. The king of the jungle. He's the last of his kind, just kind of walking off into the desert. I have no idea what happened to the photographer, if he lived. Like, that's just a scary picture, but some people said that was the most important picture. But over and away, thousands and thousands of people actually said that this picture right here was the most important picture ever taken. In the history of photography, this picture right here, according to thousands of people online, is the most important picture ever taken. 
What is it? You know, in, in our age of Instagram, and we're, we're just so used to just scrolling through hundreds and hundreds of pictures, why would people say that this photograph here is the most important picture ever taken? So if you don't know what it is, it just looks like it's this dome building, and maybe those are clouds, so it's like a dome on a cloudy day. It just doesn't really have any significance. If you have no idea what you're looking at, it doesn't carry the weight behind it. We have no context for it. This picture, actually, though, is uh, it's of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And that's not, those aren't clouds, that's smoke from Nazi bombs. So the Nazis, the Germans, had been bombing London, like not a war zone, a city, London, where people had lived, and they'd been doing it, they'd done several raids. And many people reported that the Brits were taking it in a typically British style. They were like, oh, we don't really care, who cares? Not a big deal. But by the third raid, they were all nervous, and it started to shake and rattle the city. And so the Nazis had ordered the bombing of the square that St. Paul's Cathedral was in. But they couldn't knock down St. Paul's Cathedral. You see, there's rubble all around it, but they couldn't knock this building down. And this picture was spread throughout the Allied forces, and it became a symbol, a symbol of both hope and defiance. It was a symbol of, yeah, you may hit us in the face, but you're not going to knock us down. See, when you understand what you're looking at, it brings a whole bunch of meaning and depth behind it. It's not just some random picture. See, and my concern this morning is that when many of us look at this body, this entity called the church, we're not really sure what we're looking at. We don't really have a ton of context, and so it's kind of this just random picture. What exactly are we doing here this morning? Why did we all roll out of bed to come together, sing some songs, and hear a sermon? Is there any significance to anything we're doing here? And look, as, as church grows more and more foreign to the context that we live in, like, we need to have answers to these questions. Because it's not just our culture that's asking, like, what, what is the point of church? Is it relevant today? There's many of us sitting in these pews that have these same questions. What are we doing? What's the point of that? Is Christianity relevant for today? And what Paul is seeking to do in the book of Ephesians is he's helping us reshape our identity. He wants to help us look at this from a new angle, a new perspective. We get to see church from God's perspective. What's going on here? Is there any significance? Do I need to be here on a Sunday morning? Can't I just watch a better sermon on live stream somewhere from the comfort of my own house? Like, what are we doing here? Paul's point again and again is this, gathering, just your very being here, is significant. This isn't just a simply, this gathering communicates something. It communicates that Jesus won and he's making a new people, a new humanity. And just our very gathering communicates not just to the world, but to angels and demons that Jesus's victory is complete. And your being here shows the world what that victory is and what it looks like. See, church, we're not just some gathering of good people who get together to hang out to just admire our goodness. It's also not some kind of book club. Like, we're all reading the same book. We just get together on Sunday and kind of go over our notes. No, no, no. This is a gathering of people who've been made new, who come together to look to the one who saved them and worship. And when we just gather, amazing things happen. And the book of Ephesians, what it helps us do is it helps us keep the main thing, the main thing thing. And and that's my concern for us this morning. See, if we let other things flow to the center, we're going to, we're going to miss, you have to work to keep the gospel the main thing. We'll fill in the blanks ourselves. 
And what often happens is if we don't know what we're doing and what this is about, or who Jesus is and how who we are is shaped by who he is, we'll fill in those blanks ourselves. And people do that all the time. So oftentimes there are two Jesuses that you hear about that people make. There's one Jesus, he's hippie Jesus. You know him. He sells fair trade almonds out of the back of his VW bus. He's got an acoustic guitar and he just wants us to love one another. And he'd never say anything that would hurt or offend anybody. And people say that's grace. We have grace as Jesus here. And there's other people who don't feel like that's quite right. And so like, no, 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 Jesus, he's all about truth and power. And so he's like, life's hard, get a helmet. I'm going to blog and let you know all the ways you're wrong. And so oftentimes what you have is you see his church is filling in the blanks. Who are we? What do we do? Are we just supposed to love and be gracious and not ever confront people? Or are we just supposed to be mean and just like, here's the truth, take it or leave it, goodbye. And in Ephesians, Paul lets us see that there's a third way. It's not this either or. We get to see how Jesus' grace and his power work for our flourishing. And that's what chapter 1 lays the foundation for. Look, we're going to be talking about some hot-button topics as we go through Ephesians. We're talking about predestination, talking about gender roles. There's like really hot topic buttons in this book. But Paul says, he kicks off this letter in verse 17. He says this. He says, I'm asking, this is why he's writing the book. I'm asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and if you skip ahead to what he's asking, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Why? So that you may know him better. Well, what does that look like? I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope. So the first thing it would look like to know him better is to know the hope to which you've been called. Next, he wants you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance among his people. Lastly, the, the incomparably great power. When we start to understand the gospel, it gives us hope. It helps us also understand the amazing benefits that God has given us through Christ. And then when we see that, we can actually start to live in power. And real change and real transformation can happen for us. That all flows out of the gospel. And so Paul is laying the foundations this morning, helping us see how both Jesus' power and his grace work together for our flourishing. And there's three ways, three things that we're going to look at this morning to help us see that. The first we're going to look at is how Jesus' power over sin redeems us. We're going to be talking about sin, and sin is really powerful. But Jesus is far more powerful over it, and it, that his power over sin is what makes us new. It's what kicks us all off. Then he want, Paul wants to direct our attention to how Jesus powerfully pursues us in love. We're talking predestination. Then after we see that, we're going to be talking about how Jesus' power not only saves us, rescues us, makes us new, but he keeps us safe until we're home. So let's first look at how Jesus' power over sin redeems us. Jesus' power over sin redeems us. That's verses 7 through 10. Let's look at that again. Here's what Paul says. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and things on earth." Paul, the, one of the very first breaks that Paul wants you to know is, in Christ, we experience redemption. What does that mean? There's a lot that we can unpack in that sentence. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, when Jesus raised from the dead, 
that Paul ends the chapter by saying he, he raised from the dead and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. He is a king. And when you are in his kingdom, you experience salvation. When salvation occurs, when Jesus reigns. And so when we are in his kingdom, we experience redemption. And this idea of redemption has to do with being bought back. Uh, in the Roman culture, they had, it was a slave culture. And this word is often used for people who would go into the slave market and buy back a slave. And that's exactly what Jesus does to us. See, it paints this picture that he bought us back from sin. And a lot of us have a hard time understanding what that means. Like, we kind of say that. That's kind of a churchy thing. Okay, like, Jesus redeems me from sin. But we, we, what does that actually look like, and what does that actually mean? Well, see, a lot of us tend to think about sin as, like, lists. So, we, okay, smoking, that's a sin. You know, chewing tobacco, that's a sin. Swearing, that's a sin. We just, we just look at these lists, and, the, okay, that's what the Bible says, sin. It's a list of behaviors I shouldn't do. I actually don't think smoking and chewing tobacco are sin, but that's, we can talk about that later. So we, we look at sin as just these lists. And so we're saying, okay, Jesus redeemed me, so now I'm redeemed, therefore I don't do things on this list. I'm a good person. That's actually not what this passage is talking about. When the Bible refers to sin, it's not primarily talking about your behavior. Sin is fruit of something else. It's, it's, it's fruit of, of the trajectory of your life. See, when the Bible describes sin, it's not just giving you a list of behavior. It's saying, hey, what are you building your identity on? And the way that Ephesians actually describes that is by talking about paths. And it presents life in two paths. Uh, there's a path that you can build your identity and find your value and your worth from God. That's one path. And there's another path that you can be on where you look to other things to find your value and your worth. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying Jesus redeems us from. And the, if you know the Hebrew Bible, if you look through the, the Old Testament, there's, there's a trifecta of, there's three things that if we're not building our identity on God, that we tend to build our identity on. Sex, power, and money. And so here's how sin works. Let's say that you're getting your value, your identity from power. Well, what does that look like? How, do, well, how does sin kind of impact your life there? You know, if you're getting your identity from power, you love being that person who when you come into a meeting, the meeting starts. Oh, wow, like, so-and-so's here. We're, everybody put your phone away. We, they mean business. You love going into a coffee shop, and everybody knows your name. You love being known. You love being viewed as important. You get your value and your status from your perceived power. That's, that's the path that you're on, that the Bible describes. And sin is fruit of that. A fruit of that kind of attitude is pride. It's not serving other people. It's using other people. Those are all fruits of a trajectory that you're on. And Paul wants you to know that Jesus actually redeems you. He buys you back from that path. He's saying, hey, you're headed on this path that's not life-giving. It's actually life-taking. The book of Proverbs uh, says that there's a way which seems right to a man, but in the end is death. Sin and building your your identity on things other than God, it leads to death, but it's not an instant death. It's the kind of death that just takes your life slowly. Uh, It's life-taking, but it ends in, uh, the ultimate end is death, separation from God. And so what it means when Jesus redeems you, he buys you back. How does he do that? It says says this in uh, verse 7, in him we have redemption 
through his blood. When the Bible talks about the blood of Jesus, it doesn't mean there's anything magical about the blood flowing through his body. It means his death. Your sin, the trajectory that you were on, results in death. And Jesus pays that price for you, buying you out of that path. And that's actually really good news for a couple different reasons. One is because when we sin and we ask for forgiveness, God forgives us of intentional sins. Like we are saying like, God, I'm headed this way. I know I know better, but I'm headed this way. Thank you. And that's what God forgives us from. Jesus sees your sin, that you're intentionally sinning, and he says, I'm buying them. That's real power. See, we use power in a way that like, we, we just want status from people. We just want these things. But Jesus, the one with actually power, lays that aside and buys us back from that life-taking path. Why? Well, he says earlier, so that he could present us blameless before God. Are we blameless before God? No. One of the things about sin is that it, it has a nasty side effect. It's called guilt. Everybody in this room knows, even if you're not a Christian, you know that you're not living up to your best self. No one's their best self all the time. No one, you, this, these standards that we create for ourselves, we can't even add up to our own standards. And that creates this low-lying guilt that we all live with. And Paul says that Jesus, how does he deal with that? His death gives us the forgiveness of sin. That word forgiveness means erasing. Jesus actually doesn't just cover up your guilt. He doesn't say, hey, look away. It doesn't matter. He erases your guilt. It's totally gone. That's real power. Sin is powerful. It, 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 it enslaves us. It takes us places we don't want to go. But Jesus uses his power to rescue and redeem us. That's, and it's all, why would he do this for us? Paul says it again. It's in accordance with the grace. And then it literally says this, with which he graced us with. There's just grace all the way through this. This is in accordance with his character. He's kind. He loves rescuing sinners. And you can tell churches that don't really believe this, two things happen. One, they either don't like telling people they're sinners. They're like, oh, it's going to hurt people's feelings. It's going to offend them. Let's just not tell people they're sinners. Let's just tell them God's nice. That actually doesn't have any hope or any offering for anyone because there's no transformation. But when we know that God sees us in our ugliness and in our rottenness and he wants us then, he pays, he buys us with something so costly as his son, that gives us a deep assurance that we don't have to be our best selves. At our worst, we have been redeemed and rescued. Look, there are people in this room who if, oh, if you really knew who I was, I don't even know if you'd want me in this room. That's, this is exactly where you should be. This is good news for self-righteous Pharisees who think they don't really sin and don't have any sin. And this is good news for people who know that they're a dumpster fire. In him, we have redemption. And so when we are blameless before the Father, it's not because you somehow fixed your life, you covered up that guilt with so many good deeds that now you're blameless because there's more good things than bad things. It's that the guilt, that the sin that you've uh, lived in has occurred is gone. God looks at you like you are Jesus. And that's the first thing. That's, what, that's how Jesus' power redeems us. Nobody could do this. God has to do this for us. And the second thing that we need to see about God's power is that not only have we been redeemed, 
but we've been wanted and powerfully pursued. Before we talk about predestination, I'm going to get a drink of water. (laughs) All right. So as I was prepping this week, I was really kind of nervous about talking about predestination. I was like, man, like, this is really controversial. I know that uh, Christians have argued about this for hundreds of years. Here we go, Craig. You know, I don't want to step in anything. Ed's on sabbatical. Hey, what'd you do? I just split the church. (laughs) No big deal. But here's the thing. Paul knows that. And he mentions it not once, not twice, but four times in this passage. And he's already said what he wants, what he wants. His prayer was letting us know what he's talking about. He wants you to know God better. And so we have a lot of questions about what predestination is and how it works. And I want to try to walk through that a little bit with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about when I say predestination, predestination means that before, look, Paul explains it. And he says, look, in love, he predestined us for adoption. But earlier he says this, he chose us before the creation of the world. Now, does this mean that before anything ever happened, it was already written in a book, already said, settled, and done. There's a lot of questions that get raised when we talk about predestination, and we're going to actually look to an unusual person to help us uh, figure this out. This is a Slovenian philosopher. He's a communist, uh, and he's the man. His name is Slave Zizak. Uh, he's my favorite philosopher, and he's not a person of faith. He's not a Christian at all. Uh, and Zizak was asked by some of his students uh, a question about religion. And he gave this answer that was super profound. And so I'm going to try to paraphrase it and share it with you this morning. He, he said this. He said, the purest expression of religion in the world today is Protestant Christianity. And namely, a Protestant Christianity that believes in predestination. What? And he said this. It has to be predestination. It has to be. The idea, the idea that we work for God, that we do good things, and if our good things outweigh our bad things, we're accepted by God, he said this, is vulgar. He says that creates this economic relationship with God, that, uh, okay, uh, you have something I want, I have something you want, I'll give you some of that, my good deeds, I'll be on my best behavior, and then you'll give me what I want, blessing, that promotion, all these things. He says that's totally vulgar. And he says predestination creates all kinds of questions in our minds. But don't for a second think, does this mean we're robots? Like, can I have chocolate or strawberry? That is not what we're talking about at all. That's not on the table at all. This is what Zizak says. He says he compares it to the idea of falling in love. Love has to be the freest thing in the world. If we take a woman and we say, fall in love with this man, you have to love him. She's, that's not free. She's not going to love him. There's going to be no experience of love happening there. That's coercion. So love has to absolutely be free. But yet, when we think about love, it isn't really a choice we make like we think about choices. We don't say, okay, I'm looking for this person. They have to have quality A, quality B, quality C. Okay, you, you fit 90% of that. I love you. That's just not how love works. Zizak says it works like this. You're, you're going through your life and then bam, it hits you. You love someone and you cannot do otherwise. It completely changes your, your necessity, your needs, your compulsion. You can't turn away. He said it's the same thing as people going to war. 
When Nazi Germany invaded Europe, people, sure, they decided to go to war, but if they were to say it like that, I, I chose this. That's, again, what he says, is vulgar. Uh, rather, what they say is, how can, I, how can I just sit home while people are dying? I have to. I can't live with myself if I don't do that. And that's how God pursues us. He loves us. Here's the, the, this is meant to give you hope and good news. That, look, this message was originally written to, written to Gentile believers in the Roman Empire. And Paul just assumes that they know their Hebrew Bible. And so they would know that in the Old Testament, there's one character who's called the elect. It's Israel. Israel is God's elect. And now Paul opens the letter by saying this. Hey, you get all the blessings. Blessed is the one who has blessed us with every single spiritual blessing. And they're reading this thing like, whoa, whoa, wait. I think, isn't Israel supposed to get those blessings? Are we like, are we God's sloppy seconds? Like, did you mean to invite us here? And so Paul's saying this. Look, before you were even born, God said you. I'm going after you. And it's an invitation to be loved and cared for, and pursued by God. Yes, there's all kinds of questions about election. Let's let those questions hang in the air for a second, and see what God is trying to communicate to us. What did he predestine us to? Adoption. We've been predestined to adoption. The Roman Empire is very similar to uh, the empire that we live in. Um, There was a social class in Rome, and so oftentimes uh, slaves not oftentimes, all the time. Slaves were lower class people. However, if they were adopted into an upper class family, they would get the status. They would get the privileges of being in that family. They would no longer be viewed as a second class citizen. Here's what Paul is saying. We have been adopted. And then what does it say though? It says this, uh, to sonship. That's super good news. We get to be the heirs Here's what this passage is saying, that Jesus won something. He won something when he he died. And it says it in verse 10 that he's uniting all things to himself. And we get the inheritance of that. We get everything. Why? Because we're so awesome? Because we have something great to offer God? No. He just did it in grace. And now if for a second you think, oh, great, I'm the frozen chosen, I don't have to do anything. Slave Zizak has some words for you as well. That's the paradox of predestination. Paradox of predestination. Zizak says this. He says, look, you would think people that believe in predestination think, oh, great, I'm predestined. And this is what he says. I can sit down, read pornography, and drink lemonade. Nothing matters. It's all been written from the beginning. But that's not the case. He says people who believe in predestination, it creates this deeper love for God. Look, if people that you've met who claim to like, we love predestination, we're the frozen chosen, I would love to say, I would just gently like to say that those people haven't got it. That's not what Paul's talking about in this passage. And if your attitude is pride and immobility, I would say not only have you not got it, you're actually just a dangerous person. What Paul's talking about here, why he's willing to step into this controversial space with us, is because he wants you to know deep down you are loved and wanted. In your relationship with God, there's a very stable party and there's a very frail party. We are that very frail party. Moods change. They go up and down, left and right. One day we feel good and great, woohoo, ready to conquer the world. The next day we're like, oh, am I even worth it? Should I get out of bed? What's going on? And here's what Paul is saying to you this morning. You are loved by God, not by your ability to figure it out, not by your love back for him. 
He loved you and he chose you and he invited you. That's supposed to give you a deep comfort. You are deeply loved. And that's what Paul says, actually, in verse 11. He tells this pun in Greek that is kind of hard to come across in English. But the word basically for um, elect that he uses in verse 11 is way different from the one he uses earlier. And it's supposed to sound like this. The The literal translation, it doesn't actually say, in him we were chosen. It says this, in him we find our being. But then that word sounds like elect, so it's like, because we are chosen, we find our whole identity in him. What's he saying? He's saying this, many of us have a past behind us that we'd rather leave behind us. We have sin and shame and just things that just like, either, you know, before you came to Christ or even after you're a Christian, there's just things that you've done that you just can't believe you've done that. But what it means that God actually loved you and called you before you were before he even created the world means that you can go back and read your story through that lens. You can make sense of yourself like this. I was wanted. These situations I walked through, God was using them to lead me to him. He pursued me. He loved me. Like the great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, this is all of grace. So let's give you a deep, deep comfort that you were wanted. God just isn't like Willy Wonka who puts golden tickets in a bunch of chocolate bars and says, all right, whoever comes, comes. He wants you. When you get to the party, he's not like, you? Oh, okay. No, he's like, I planned this. I orchestrated this for you. And that is, that is just the beginning of it. See, that power that he pursues us with actually keeps us safe for a future. And that's Paul's last point here. Jesus' power keeps us safe until we are home. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Christians live in this place of tension. We live in an already and not yet kind of space. Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The gospel makes us new. But we haven't received all the blessings of the gospel. What Paul says in verse 10, that all things are going to be united in Christ. That means the environment. I saw a headline, who knows if it's true, but we'll just assume it's true for a second. It said like 99% of uh, Americans live under a polluted sky. So we live in a broken world. That's going to be fixed one day. The, what Jesus won on the cross is not just about you and your relationship with God. Yet that's the baseline for it, but it's so much more than that. It's about how he's fixing all things. And we haven't, we're not there yet. We are united to God, but not everything around us is yet. The world is still broken. How do we know this is going to come true? How do we know we're not just insane? How do we know we're not just like wishful thinking? Here's what he says. He has sealed us with a mark, the promised Holy Spirit. I don't know if any of you in in here have ever gone apartment shopping or shopping for a house, but it's really stressful. Actually, probably the most stressful moment of it is when you find a, a space you like. Like, oh man, I gotta get this paperwork filled out really fast. I gotta get everything in. I really need this to work because I really love this space. It's close to my work. Oh my gosh, it's awesome. Uh, And when does that stress go away? When they cash your deposit check. 
That's how you know you've got it and you go, you got the space. God left you a deposit. What did he leave you? Himself. That's pretty awesome. He says this. He says this. He is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And that was what Paul says later in the, that's meant to give us a hope. Hope is not just some kind of wishful thinking like, well, well, I really hope all this Jesus stuff is true because that would be kind of cool. No, no, it's meant to give you a deep foundational like, yes, the world around me may be broken, it may be chaotic, but Jesus won and that's the future I have to look forward to because he is, his spirit is residing in me. That's not just the only way that the spirit keeps you safe for that future. His power works for you. The other way it is, is he seals you. Uh, that word seal is used at the end of Matthew's gospel when they seal Jesus in a tomb with a rock. I know that may not be like the best because he got out, but uh, no one else got out, okay? Those seals were solid, uh, and they were not meant to be broken, and that we are sealed in Christ. All these benefits that we have, we are stuck in Christ. When I first got to this church, one of the questions that I was asked kind of over and over, and it kind of surprised me, I was asked by people in leadership, by people who were just visiting, uh, it was this question. Hey, do you think a Christian can lose their salvation? Now, that's a really important question. And I just want to respond by saying this. Look, there are a lot of controversial things in the Bible. There's a lot of heavy things that we need to really think through and weigh out. This is not one of them. This is easy. No. This passage says clearly and loudly, if you are in Christ, you are sealed. And not only are you sealed, God left himself residing in you as proof positive. He will get you home. We live in the already, not yet, but it is as good as done because he has left himself with you. Your future is secure. I understand that presents a lot of questions like, well, what about people who walk away and fall away? Look, whether or not they were saved and fell away or they never were saved, the, the, what we need to give them is the same either way. They need the hope of the gospel. They don't need, we don't need to say like, hey, you left church. Why don't you stop watching those movies and just come back to church? No, no, no. They need to understand that G, they are sinful. They're building their identity on something and Jesus rescues them from that. They need to understand that he powerfully pursues them. One of the questions that happens with election all the time is, well, does that mean why did God choose some and not others? That's looking at it from the wrong perspective. Here's, here's Jesus kind of helps us see that. He answers that question by looking at it from God's perspective and our perspective. Here's what he says. All that the Father gives to me will come. Okay, that's, that's God's side of things. Here's our side of things. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. That's John six thirty seven. And that's an emphatic, I will never, ever cast out. If you're here this morning, you're like, ah, am I elect? Like, am I chosen? If you come to Jesus, he never turns you away. Don't let the question of election keep you from coming to Jesus. Don't let the question of election, if you know Jesus, be like, am I really loved? If you've come to Jesus, this is true for you. And here's, here's, what, I, here's what we do with this. How do we rearrange our life based on this information. One of the things, I've been getting a lot of encouragement, like, hey, you're preaching for Ed. Hey, we, you really need to tell us as a church to do this. You really need, and it's awesome encouragement. Please don't stop that. But here's one of the challenges of Ephesians. There is literally no application in one through three. What I mean by that, Paul gives no commands. He doesn't tell you to do anything. 
He just says, here's God, here's the gospel, here's what he's done for us. And that's on purpose. Because Paul knows us. We are so quick. To be, okay, what do I do? Oh, I feel guilty. I need to do all these things. I, feel, I, 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 I did something bad. I should just read my Bible for an hour. I'll feel better and everything will be fine, right? Just tell me what to do. I'll make this better. Paul wants to help you see things from a new perspective. He wants to point you to what Jesus has done and the benefits that you have from that, how that gives you a hope, how that helps you move deeper into those benefits and really live in resurrection power. So my prayer as we go through this is as a church, we would all work to keep the main thing, the main thing, that Jesus loves saving sinners and that the benefits that we get from the gospel are better than we can imagine, that it actually rescues us from the wrong path and gives us a whole new identity because he loves us and he pursued us. That's my prayer for us, that we move deeper into that grace. Let's pray, and then we're going to continue uh, worshiping the Lord. Father, I thank you that your word is clear. I know there are, there are hard truths in it, but I thank you that your word just tells us of the hope we have in Jesus. God, I pray that we would be uh, driven deeper into that hope, that we would not see the gospel as the ABCs of the faith, but that the gospel really is for Christians, that it's meant to help us know you deeper and richer and help us live in the power of the resurrection. We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.